0: Welcome to Defenders, the teaching class of Dr. William Lane Craig. Today, The Doctrine of Christ, Part 18. For more information and resources from Dr. Craig, go to reasonablefaith.org.
1: We've completed our survey of the biblical data concerning uh, Christ's atonement, as well as a brief uh, synopsis of certain great figures in the history of the church with respect to their thinking on the atonement. And today we want to now reflect on this doctrine uh, and explore what options are open to a biblically faithful atonement theorist. I want to reiterate what I said earlier that any atonement theory, however appealing or attractive it might appear to you, which does not do justice to the biblical data. Just is not an acceptable atonement theory. Now, while I'm not going to defend a specific atonement theory, I do think that any adequate theory of the atonement um, must incorporate the following elements. And the first and foremost of these is penal substitution. An essential and I think central element of any biblically adequate atonement theory. Is penal substitution. Penal substitution in a theological context can be defined as the doctrine that God inflicted upon Christ the suffering which we deserved as the punishment for our sins as a result of which we no longer deserve suffering. It is the doctrine that God inflicted upon Christ the suffering that we deserved as the punishment for our sins, as a result of which we no longer deserve punishment. Now, Notice that that explication leaves open the question of whether God punished Christ for our sins. Some defenders of penal substitution recoil at the idea that God punished his beloved Son. But notice that the explication that I've given allows that Christ was not punished but that rather he endured the suffering which would have been our punishment had it been inflicted on us. So God did not technically punish Christ for our sins but he afflicted him with the suffering which we deserved as the punishment for our sins. And I don't think we want to exclude, simply by definition, such an account from being a penal substitutionary theory, because on such an account, Christ does suffer as our substitute, and he does bear what would have been our punishment, as a result of which we are released from punishment. Now, my explication does allow you, if you want to hold this, that God did, in fact, punish. Christ for our sins. So it's consistent with saying that God punished Christ for our sins, but it doesn't require it. One can simply say that Christ endured the suffering which would have been our punishment had it been inflicted upon us. Is there any question of an understanding sort of nature about that subtle distinction between uh, saying that God punished Christ and saying that Christ endured the suffering which would have been our punishment had it been inflicted on us. Don. The whole concept of punishment in my mind revolves around justice. Yes. We did the crime, we got to do the time. And if He took it for us, that's a blessing for us. Yes. But we still deserve it. Yes. Yes, that's right. And. Um, penal substitution theorists would agree with that any other question about this explication of what penal substitution is steve
0: so i guess i don't understand the distinction because All right. because if he truly was punished then he would have been cut off and without hope like we are and so therefore who uh, was he that way
1: well, penal substitution theorists wouldn't agree with that. They would say that he endured the punishment which was our just desert, but that God then raised him from the dead, uh, that he, having paid that penalty or paid that punishment, um, cannot be held um, any longer and is risen and ascended into heaven. So, That's a a different question that I suppose the person who says that God punished Christ for our sins would have to deal with, whereas the person who affirms this weaker or more modest version wouldn't have to deal with that question. Now I think that any atonement theory which hopes to account adequately for the biblical data has to include penal substitution. there's no way to account for the biblical data from Isaiah 53 and the employment of that chapter in the New Testament without penal substitution. Moreover, if penal substitution is true it can't just be a peripheral or subsidiary element of your atonement theory because it is foundational for so many other aspects of the atonement such as the satisfaction of divine justice uh, our redemption from sin, even the moral influence of Christ's example. So, a composite or multifaceted atonement theory is going to need to include penal substitution at its center. Since the time of Socinus, however, the doctrine of penal substitution has faced formidable and some would say insuperable philosophical challenges. Now, in discussing these challenges, my aim is not to provide a single solution to them. I want to explore with you various options which are open to the Christian thinker. And a discussion of these challenges is going to take us into very lively debates in the philosophy of law, uh, particularly with respect to the theory of punishment. We're going to be looking at philosophy of law with respect to the theory of punishment. Unfortunately most theologians today and in fact most Christian philosophers have very little familiarity with this field of philosophy and with these debates. The doctrine of penal substitution is almost invariably dismissed by its critics today with a single paragraph or maybe even a single sentence to the effect that it would be unjust of God to punish an innocent person for somebody else's sins. Full stop, end of discussion. I think we've got to go much deeper than that. Now, One's theory of punishment is going to include both a definition of punishment and a justification of punishment. A definition of punishment will uh, enable us to determine what counts as punishment. A justification of punishment will help us to determine whether a punitive action is permitted or even required, depending on your theory. And both of these elements of a theory of punishment are relevant to penal substitution. Now, I want to issue a word of caution, however, before we look at this in more detail. The type of punishment discussed by legal theorists and philosophers of law is almost invariably legal punishment within the criminal justice system. And While this can be very analogous to divine justice, human systems of justice also have features which are significantly disanalogous to divine justice. Uh, To give just an obvious example, um, the state may be forced not to administer justice to some person because of a lack of prison space due to overcrowding or lack of funds. And obviously, these kinds of limitations would not affect the administration of divine justice. So, human justice and divine justice will not always be tightly uh, parallel. Nevertheless, legal theorists and philosophers of law have poured an enormous amount of thought into the theory of punishment. And so, I think there is a great deal to be learned from them but we always need to keep in mind that their theories of punishment are not directly transferable to all forms of punishment, uh, especially divine punishment. So we want to begin by talking then about the definition of punishment. Punishment involves, first of all, harsh treatment uh, of someone, as is obvious from typical cases of punishment. But harsh treatment is not sufficient for something to be punishment, however, as even Socinus recognized God could afflict a person with suffering and that wouldn't necessarily be punishment on that person. So what transforms harsh treatment into punishment? Well, This is where the debate begins. And so I want to look at the alleged incoherence of penal substitution. In fact, there is no consensus among legal theorists as to what are the sufficient conditions for harsh treatment to count as punishment. But I want to consider some of the necessary conditions uh, for punishment according to a standard philosophical encyclopedia. This is from the article on retributive justice in the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy. The Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy, the article Retributive Justice. This is what the author says For an act to count as punishment, it must have four elements. And so here are four necessary conditions for an act to be punishment. First, it must impose some sort of cost or hardship on the person being punished. That's the harsh treatment. Second, the punisher must do so intentionally, not as an accident or a side effect of pursuing some other end. If you were to uh, accidentally run over somebody in your car, you would treat him harshly, but that wouldn't be punishment. Thirdly, the hardship or loss must be imposed in response to what is believed to be a wrongful act or omission. The person uh, has done something wrong or omitted some action that he ought to have done, and therefore the hardship is being imposed in response to this wrongful act or omission. And finally, number four, the hardship or loss must be imposed at least in part as a way of sending a message of condemnation or censure for what is believed to be a wrongful act or omission. So there's a sort of stigma attached to punishment that carries a connotation of condemnation or censure for this uh, wrongful act or omission. Now, this is a version of what is called an expressivist theory of punishment. An expressivist theory of punishment. This has been made uh, popular by the legal theorist Joel Feinberg. According to this theory of punishment, harsh treatment imposed upon someone must express condemnation or censure in order to count as punishment. That's why it is called expressivism. This harsh treatment is an expression of condemnation or censure. And Some critics of penal substitution have claimed that given an expressivist theory of punishment God could not have punished Christ for our sins. God could not condemn or censure Christ because Christ was sinless. Since he was utterly innocent, had done nothing wrong, he could not be condemned or censured by God. Now, notice that the objection here is not that it would be immoral or unjust for God to punish Christ uh, for other people's wrongs. No, the objection is that any harsh treatment that God might impose upon Christ, any suffering that he might afflict him with, would not count as punishment because it wouldn't express condemnation or censure. Now, Before we look at responses to this objection, let me ask if there's any question of a comprehension nature about the objection. We're not looking here for your critical responses but just questions of comprehension. Yes? So I'm confused. The condemnation is of the act? Ah, this is a very good question. You're, you're really thinking. I, 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 I admire your, your subtlety. Let me read again that fourth condition from the article on retributive justice. The hardship or loss must be imposed at least in part as a way of sending a message of condemnation or censure for what is believed to be a wrongful act or omission. That definition did not say that the condemnation or censure had to be directed toward the person punished. And We're going to pick up on that omission or that, that uh, lacuna uh, in our response. You're, you're quite right in noticing that, that expressivism as it is typically stated, as I have always seen it stated in fact, I have never seen an exception to this, it never says that the condemnation or censure needs to be directed toward the person punished. But we will say more about that later. Good question. Anybody else? Comprehension type question. Yes, Brad? Is, is there anything in the objective of punishment that would lead us to understand better its definition? Is, it, is the objective to rehabilitate someone, uh, or is the objective to keep others from doing it? Okay, or, I, mean, I, I wasn't going to go into that, Brad, but you are quite right in drawing our attention to that. Your theory of punishment is going to derive from your theory of justice, what you think punishment is for will be based upon your theories of justice. and There are typically two broad competing theories of justice. One is called retributivism and the other is called consequentialism. Retributivism and consequentialism. Retributivism says that justice um, gives the offender what he deserves. Punishment is the just desert of the guilty. The guilty deserve punishment and that is the justification for punishment. It is giving the offender what he has earned. He deserves to be punished. Consequentialism says that the reason you punish the offender is for the benefits or consequences that can ensue from punishment. For example, to sequester dangerous criminals from society where they can't harm people. You you lock them away. Or the reformation of the criminal to help him to become a better person and turn over a new leaf. You punish him for his personal reformation. A third consequence could be for deterrence. When people see how these criminals are punished this will hopefully deter them from committing similar crimes. So you can see that consequentialism is very different from retributivism with regard to justice and your theory of punishment. Now, During the first half or three-quarters of the 20th century, the dominant view among legal theorists as a result of the influence of psychologists and social scientists was consequentialism. and It was a disaster for our prison system. Um, In fact, deterrence doesn't work. It doesn't reform the criminal to lock them away in prison. Very often they they become worse. Whole idea of consequentialism has been exposed as um, really fraudulent. In fact, it resulted in terrible abuses. One um, writer that I read pointed out that as a result of this theory, women received longer prison sentences than men. For the same crimes. And the rationale was that women were thought to be more reformable than men. And therefore, you punish them more because the purpose is to reform them and help them to become better. And so, as a result, women were given more severe prison sentences than men out of this misplaced motivation of trying to help them reform. And so, there has been a sea change. Uh, in recent decades, concerning theories of justice, where these consequentialist theories have really receded and retributivist theories now would be the standard uh, way in which justice is understood. That the, the fundamental reason you punish the guilty is because this is what they deserve, it's their just desert. Now, this is a very welcome development, I think, for the Christian theist because it seems very clear to me at least that, biblically speaking, God's justice is retributive. The reason I say that is because God's justice is eschatological. He waits until the end of time, the end of human history, to finally administer justice. Until then he lets the tares grow with the wheat. Uh, But then ultimately there will be final Judgment in which people get their just desserts, and it's hard to see how that could have any sort of consequentialist motivation. Um, what the, the people in hell aren't going to be reformed or or better. There's no deterrence uh, factor at that point. It seems that the nature of divine justice is retributive, and. The scriptures say over and over again that the guilty deserve punishment by God. Paul says in Romans 1.32, though they know that those who do such things deserve to die, they not only approve them but practice them themselves. That is a statement of retributive justice. Those who do such things deserve to die. So this change in legal theory uh, has been, I think, a very welcome development from the standpoint of the Christian theologian, given that the biblical view of divine justice, I think, is fundamentally retributive. Okay, good question. Yes, Taylor. Uh, could you expound on uh, consequentialism as a, as a form of justification? Because, I mean, I can understand it. Okay, well, the, the idea would be, and this is a justification for punishment, the reason punishment is justified is because for example you've got to isolate these rapists and thieves and murderers or they might hurt other people so for the sake of society you incarcerate them and put them in prison see that's that's a consequentialist it's not that they deserve to be imprisoned it's not that they deserve this punishment you just put them away there to Isolate them from hurting more people. Do you see that? Uh, uh, yeah. Uh, well, sorry. Uh, I, I guess maybe my confusion is um, it, when I ever think of justice, I do ultimately think of retributionism. Uh, so it just seems. Weird yeah. Well, to that's think. not the consequentialist view. You see. Yeah. The consequentialist view is that these people are to be punished for example because it isolates dangerous criminals or, as I mentioned, it is for his own benefit. You are going to reform him. Uh, the state, the benevolent state, is going to do these things to help him become a better person or, as I say, to deter crime. Those are all consequentialist reasons for why the state should punish people. And. As I think you can see, those don't seem to apply very well to divine punishment. Yes, Cody.
0: Yeah, it's interesting you mention that, because I was thinking too about how I've been, I hear a lot of atheists lately, like they will actually object to the doctrine of hell and substitutionary atonement by attacking retributive justice, because ah. they tend to be very consequentialist in their thinking about punishment mm-hmm. and everything, and so, because you know, one statement I hear them say things is like, well, in hell, you know, it's like, you don't come out a better person in hell, so it just right. seems pointless, like God's just, ah. you know, it's that consequentialist motivation, right? Exactly,
1: that's very good, Cody, you, you are seeing the assumption that, underlies the uh, objection. Mm -hmm. You don't come out of hell any better, so what's the point of punishing? Exactly. Uh, They clearly have absorbed this consequentialist view that was dominant until around the 1970s or so. I guess I'm just ignorant. I I always kind of assumed it was still dominant, but I guess I'm wrong on that. No, read the Uh, article on retributive justice in the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy. This is an online resource that anyone can read. And it explains the sea change that has taken place, not just a renaissance of retributive theories of justice, but a simultaneous waning of these consequentialist theories, partly for theoretical reasons, that the the philosophical objections to consequentialism were thought to be pretty substantive, but then also because, as I say, of these practical and social consequences that showed that this theory of justice was not working. In our prison system, and had terrible effects, um, and so for those two reasons, this consequentialism is very much in retreat today. Let's see. Let's take Bobby's question. Hey, Dr. Craig. Um, a minute ago, when you mentioned God's justice being eschatological, yes, I, I wanted to clarify that doesn't mean that it's exclusively eschatological. Correct? Because that's cause certainly correct. he's he's administered justice. He does. For example. History he judged Israel by having Babylon come in and destroy Israel and carry them into exile. So clearly, God's retributive justice is exercised in history. But ultimately, as I say, remember the parable of the wheat and the tares. Uh, Jesus says in the parable, don't go out and try to pull up all the weeds. Because if you do a lot of wheat is going to be damaged. In other words, a lot of innocent people are going to be hurt. Wait until the harvest, and then you'll separate the wheat from the tares. And so you have this prospect in the Bible of this great judgment day that is coming when God's ultimate justice will finally be meted out. But certainly you're right that along the way there can be historical acts of justice as well. So, so things like Adam and Eve in the Garden, uh, all of those things. Yeah, or Ananias to, and Sapphira when they exactly, were <laughs> struck right. dead, for example. Sure. Clearly, there are retributive acts of justice along the right. way. Bruce,
0: it seems like you know a number of these terms deal with uh, on punishment and retribution and so forth. Deal with uh, the human experience and God's dealing. Well, with us sometimes when we're on Earth or, or between each other as human beings, but in a cosmological sense, Second uh, Corinthians says He made Him sin who knew no sin. So He He neutralizes sin for the person that's in Christ. So when the judgment comes, you're judged as a believer as to the effectiveness of your life, not a hit parade of of your sin. And for the unbeliever, real punishment would be annihilation. God gives them their choice; they chose separation, and that's what they get. Not that they are uh, that they're giving given uh, uh, punitive measures to uh, to remind them of what they they did in life, but that they're
1: separated from God. That's the penalty. Is is. Okay, well now you've raised a number of issues here. I don't see any reason to think biblically that the real punishment for sin is annihilation rather than eternal torment, uh, but that these people who ought to be annihilated instead have chosen to be eternally tormented. No, that, that's, I, I what, don't,
0: no that's what I said. I, I don't believe in annihilation, oh, okay, but I would all say right. if God was was involved with punishing people for unbelief, then it seemed the ultimate
1: punishment would be annihilation. They've they've chosen separation. Yeah, well, I don't agree with that. I mean, God's punishment has to be just. And I think that in Scripture, the just punishment for those outside of Christ, I would say, is eternal torment. But or eternal separation from God. Yeah, yeah. But we don't need to decide that issue. I know there are lots of Christians yeah. who are annihilationists yeah. and that, that that gets to the content of the yeah. punishment, not to your theory of justice. In either case it is meant to be a retribution yeah. on the unbeliever that he deserves, what, whatever that punishment is. Um, now I forgot the first part of your well, I, I, well, I'm putting the onus
0: on the on the unbeliever, you know, redemption oh, is available. Oh, right, right, re- and, and that is in available. Christ we
1: are released from yeah. the condemnation right. that we were under when we were outside of Christ, and that's the whole point of the atonement. That That is exactly right, that it is through the atoning death of Christ, and I would say penal substitution, that we are freed from having to bear the punishment for our sins. Christ is, has borne that penalty or punishment for us, and therefore we, those who are in Christ, are freed from that condemnation and and um, desert. What would you do with the Second Corinthians passage? Oh, we'll, we'll talk made, about that later okay. on. That I, that I think that gets sin. into yeah. imputation of sin. Yeah. We'll we'll get to that. Okay. Uh, is there any other comprehension-type question at this point? Well, yes, I, James. I just had a question about the degree of punishment. Um, Hmm. Are you going to get into any of that at all? No, because that kind of thing, as well as annihilation and so forth, that should be reserved for our section on doctrine of the last things. When we talk about heaven and hell, degrees of punishment, and things like that. Here, our focus is on the atonement and specifically penal substitution. And so, as I say, we're not concerned here with the content of the Sentence that God has meted out, but simply that God's justice is retributive, and therefore those who deserve punishment are punished. And now we're asking, well, what does it mean to be punishment, to be punished? And we're looking at this expressivist theory of punishment, and asking, does this exclude Christ from being punished? Um, since he had no sin, for which he could be condemned, so that that will be well, the question that we'll take up well, next time. Well,
0: where I was going with that was
1: with um, it, look at Christ's punishment on the cross. Yes, it was finite, but but the but, but the. Deservement, but the deserving punishment of 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 sin against God is actually is is actually infinite. Were correct? you not here last week? No, no, I wasn't. Did you discuss that? Yeah, that's that? what I thought. Oh, we okay. dealt with that last oh, okay. week. Okay, with uh, François Turretin, the great Reformed okay. theologian of Geneva from the late 1600s, and I think Turretin was quite correct in saying that those Christ's suffering was finite in duration; it was of infinite value because of the divinity of the person who was suffering. It was God himself. And I think that's a, um, a plausible answer to that question. All right. Well, we're out of time. So what we will do now next time is to look at various responses to the alleged incoherence of penal substitution. So let's close with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you that even while we were yet enemies, you loved us and sent Christ to die for us and to bear the punishment for our sins that we might be set free and become heirs of eternal life. Through Christ our Lord, we pray. Amen.
0: The copyright for the preceding material is held by Dr. William Lane Craig. For more, go to reasonablefaith.org.